Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Good morning. Good morning. If you are joining us for the first time, we are taking the summer months and we're thinking about uh, as sort of uh, one of the themes that was in Jake's prayer, the church and what she's supposed to be and how she's supposed to operate in the world. And as we go, we've been thinking about the church through the context of family. Family, that is what we are. As real and as tangible as your family is, maybe you've got somebody next to you that's family. If you do, pinch them, feel them. As real and as tangible as that is, right there. Yeah, yeah, okay, stop, stop. Everyone over, under 18 has to stop. How about that? As real and as tangible as that is, the household of faith is a family. We are the family of God. We are the adopted sons and daughters of the promise. And so this church, these people in this room, together, look around. We are, we are a family. We've talked about a few things over the past few weeks, some of the positions in the family. We all have a role to play. We're all part of one body, but there's, there's different parts of the body. We have many members, and we've talked specifically about the need for there to be fathers and mothers in this family. And, and along with that, what the roles of a father and the roles of a mother ought to look like. Obviously, there are certain ways in which the work of fathers and mothers is the same. They share the same responsibilities. They perform some of the same tasks. Some nights, Aaliyah washes the dishes. In the past, it's been the majority of the nights. As our, but there are nights where I wash the dishes. And as our kids get older, now we're inheriting that job to them. They are washing the dishes. So some functions are performed by fathers and mothers in the same way. But there are other things that fathers and mothers do that are distinct from each other. And this is because they aren't made the same way by God. They're different. Men and women, fathers and mothers, are different from each other. And this morning, I want to talk about distinctions. I want us to think about distinctions. The church is a family that must embrace God's distinctions. I'd ask you to stand. Our passage is going to be from the book of Exodus this morning, and it's really mirrored by Peter in his first, uh, in his first letter. You'll hear similar language, a very familiar passage from the, first, the book of 1 Peter. It's Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. This is the word of God to us. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. You'll be my special people, my particular people, among all the peoples, for all of the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests." And a holy nation. There's the language from 1 Peter. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has called us out of death into life, out of darkness into the light of your glory, into the light of your salvation through Christ and it is in his name that we pray you would, you would direct our thoughts and our minds and our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is a God of distinctions. Night and day. Land and sea. Man and woman. 
We see all these distinctions throughout the natural world. Perhaps you've, in the little time it hasn't been raining over the past few weeks, been outside as I have. And if you've been outside, had the chance to sit outside and work or do things in the yard a few times, and I've noticed that It must be the time that the monarch butterflies are coming out because I've started to see them all fluttering around my yard and other people's yards. And we love butterflies. They're beautiful creatures. Do you know that there are almost 18,000 types of butterflies in the world? That may be surprising. It may not be to you. But the point I want us to think about just for a minute is the fact that men and women have given their lives to documenting, to pinning those little things on poster boards, and documenting the differences between the colors in the wings of butterflies. Men and women have literally spent their adult lives giving themselves to documenting these distinctions. And that's just one silly little beautiful butterfly. That's just one little thing that's in this world that God has made many, many, many variations of with distinctions between this type and that type and the other type. Distinctions abound. But distinctions go deeper than various forms of color on the wings of butterflies. Shortly after the story of Adam and Eve, we're told another story, that of their two sons, Cain and Abel. And we're told that at a certain time, both of these sons came, and they presented offerings to the Lord out of what they had been given by him. And the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, but we're told that he disregarded Cain's. He was, Cain's was rejected. A distinction was made between these two types of sacrifices. And not the sacrifices alone, mind you, but actually the two men that stood behind them, the two brothers. One was faithful, the other was not. A distinction was made between them and it was recorded as an eternal warning to us and a witness to us. God is a God of distinctions. God called Abraham away from his homeland. He didn't want him to be the same as his parents and as his family was. He wanted him to be different. He wanted him to be the father of God's chosen people, language that we just read from Exodus. Israel was distinct from the nations that surrounded them. You may remember when God sent Moses back to Egypt And he said, you're going to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and he's not going to do it. You may recall that in the pronouncements that God gave to Pharaoh through Moses, there was a distinction made in almost all of those plagues, and I just want to read a few of them. This is what was said to Pharaoh. But on that day, I will deal differently in the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen is where the people of God resided. I'll deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies are going to be there so that you will know, Pharaoh, that I, the Lord, am in this land and I will make a distinction between my people and your people. And this sign will occur tomorrow. And and then it goes on with another plague and it says, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelite will die. Finally, the last plague, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn of the son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is, at her, who, is, who is at her hand in the mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark nor will any person or animal. 
Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And it's not only God who makes distinctions either. He calls his people to live in a way that maintains, that nods yes to, that affirms, and then maintains the distinctions that he has established. A clear example of this is later when the Israelites have already come out of Egypt. God gave them commands about how he was to be worshipped and how the people were to carry out the sacrifices. And he says this, you are therefore to make a distinction. This is God speaking to his people. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animals and the unclean, between the clean birds and the unclean, and so forth. Of course, this particular command was given with regard to the the Israelite ceremonial law. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. We don't have to differentiate between clean and unclean because Christ has paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins once for all, right? But we do have other commands that still call us to be distinct, to think distinct, to live distinct in agreement with God's distinctions, Shortly after the ceremony, well, it actually interspersed at the same time as God giving this, some of these ceremonial commands, at the Mount of Sinai, he gives the Ten Commandments. Those, those are applied to us today. Clearly, you shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. No other gods. There's a distinction between the gods of the world and the God of Scripture, the one true, the living God. He's making a distinction between himself and the false gods of the nations. We could pick almost all of the commandments. You shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. A distinction, the six days and then the seventh. And there are just as many distinctions in the New Testament as there are in the Old. These these aren't just Old Testament law things. Jesus, in his teaching, gives distinction after distinction. Distinctions permeate. Jesus said... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When Jesus makes this claim, he's making a bold claim over against all other ways. That's what he's saying here. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's making a bold claim over all other ways of life, all other truths, and all other aims that we could aim at in our lives. He's distinguishing between himself and all others. This is the life and death distinction that all of history is divided by. That one right there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He who is not with me is against me. That's what Jesus said. He who does not gather with me scatters. Distinctions. God is a God of distinctions and yet, and yet, His distinctions have not been embraced. No sooner had God created a world for man to dwell on than man decided that he was not content to live on the earth. And so what did he do? He sought to erase God's distinction by building a tower that would reach to the heavens. He wasn't content to live on earth. He wanted to go up. The world rebels against the distinctions that God has established. And this rebellion can be seen in various forms and manifestations within society. We see it when we're evaluating foolishness and wisdom. God says this, the world says this. We see it in terms of what we believe about life and death and when life occurs. 
and when it ends, when it should end. We see it when we're evaluating success and failure. What is failure to God? What is success to the Lord? What is it to others? There's all these distinctions that we live in the midst of, but fewer as stark nor reveal the depth of our rebellion as clearly as the removal of distinctions regarding, I would argue today, gender roles and sexuality because it is who we are. That's the central attack against who we are in our being, in our totality. We are men and women made in the image of God, and that is one of the chief things that's being, that's being stuck at with a dagger today. We live in a day where boys can be identified as girls and where girls play NCAA football. We aren't even satisfied with male and female. We go further. We have gender fluidity so that we can float back and forth depending on what we feel like on any given day. And this might sound alarming. I always want to remind myself and all of us together that this is nothing new. Don't be tempted to think if we could only go back 50 years or 80 years, all of this stuff wouldn't be there. The truth is that there is nothing new under the sun. The sins of all culture, the sins of this church, the sins of all of our hearts are common to men. That's what scripture says. These things are common. The rebellion that we see against God's distinctions is not new. It's not new. It's old, old, old as dirt. One writer put it this way. Abominable or loathsome are the sexual practices said to be characteristic of the land of the Egyptians, uh, characteristic rather, I'm sorry, of the land of Egypt behind the land of of Canaan. Incest, Leviticus 18, male homosexuality, Leviticus 18 and 20, bestiality, Leviticus 18. Abominable too are child sacrifices and especially, especially idolatry as well as the related practices of divination, soothsaying, and sorcery. In short, abominable in Israel, this is looking back a long way in the Old Testament, abominable in Israel are those activities that deny or efface the fundamental distinctions of creation. Those things that efface the fundamental distinctions of creation are loathsome to God. Child sacrifice, which makes a child into an animal. Bestiality, which makes an animal into a human being. Homosexuality, which makes a man into a woman. Idolatry, which makes an animal or a man or some other creature or object into God. So this has been around for a long time. Rebellion against God's distinctions is seen throughout Scripture and subsequent history. It's not something that only the Egyptians did. God's own people fell into these same sinful patterns And we see that in the Bible. And so there are two things that we as a church must see clearly. The first is that God has created distinctions and written them into the way the world operates, into the way the world functions. The second is that the world hates God's distinctions and tries to make its own way of things. We need to keep those things in mind. And what's obviously going on here, if we think about it, is a battle for authority. Notice that I've said that the world and we are prone to rebelling against God's distinctions, but we happen to like making our own. Have you ever thought about that? It's just the ones that other people make for us and say, nope, this is the way it's going to be. We reject those, but we're fine to do the same thing to other people. So this is really about authority, and we need to keep that in the back of our mind. Yet, uh, it, listen to, um, well, I'll say, as long as we are the authority on the matter, we're happy 
with set distinctions. We don't hoist our don't tread on me flag. Yet the clay vessel cannot ask the potter why he made him this way, nor does it have the right to insist against the potter's distinction that this vessel over here is told something that I love, like chocolate milk, and not the dreaded pencil, <laughs> the pencil mug that sits in the cabinet unused, right? He can't, make this, he can't complain about how God's made him, nor can he complain the vessel about the distinctions in the way God has made him and what function he serves. So what does this have to do with the church family? What does this have to do with us? If God created all things with distinctions woven through them, then we as a church family, must seek to maintain those distinctions rather than be ashamed of them, rather than run from them, or rather be frustrated with them. Our culture despises God's distinctions, but they are the heart of biblical faith and the ministry of the church. Distinctions are the heart of our faith and of our mission and work as a church. Two roads, two ways, death, life, heaven, Hell, broad, narrow, unbelief, belief, washed, unwashed, communing, not communing. The church cannot ignore God's distinctions. Bad things happen when you ignore distinctions. I was driving in a foreign country a handful of weeks ago, and I had multiple run-ins with the authorities while in other countries. And one of those times, I was particularly nervous because we were in a rush to get somewhere. We didn't realize there was a national holiday and all the ATMs were closed and we thought we didn't have any money and it was one of those stressful situations where we were driving 45 minutes to another town because we were told they might have an ATM with money left in it. We had thought that, we had been told that in this country on holiday weekends, there's, there's such a poverty, generally speaking, that if you have money, it's taken out and the banks literally often don't have any money. And we thought we were the last one to the ATM and we were stuck. It's not true, but we are on our way 45 minutes from where we're staying to another town and I had forgotten my ID, and we didn't have our insurance, foreign insurance with us, and I, we were halfway there, and I'm like, I'm not going back to get it. We're just going to go to this town, and what are the chances of us getting pulled over? Well, I failed to make a distinction. All the signs are different over there, and the speed limit had changed. They're all, you know, they don't look like our speed limits. I hadn't, it hadn't registered with me. I was still going like 30 kilometers over the speed limit. And here I am without my license, without my international driver's card, without my proof of insurance, without my renter's agreement. And I get pulled over, I'm sitting on the side of the road. And it was not pretty enough. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, I actually, praise God, I, I walked away from it without a fine and he just said, off with you, <laughs> be on your way. And so it ended up working okay. But, but the, the reality is, is that when we go through life ignoring distinctions, bad things happen. It's bad thing when you, when you ignore the distinction between a stop sign and a yield sign. It's a bad thing when you ignore the distinction between a butter knife and a real knife, a sharp knife, a bowie knife. We can't ignore distinctions. When we don't live in accord with the distinctions that God has created, bad things happen. But this is to look at it through one lens, and that lens is a negative one, the bad things that can happen when we ignore God's distinctions. Oppositely, when we maintain the distinctions that God has set forth, we're blessed. It's a good thing when we distinguish between the yield and the stop sign. Think about it through the lens of family. It's actually a sign of a warm, inviting, enjoyable home. 
when there are distinctions between those who make the rules and those who are called to keep the rules, isn't it? When there is no distinction between those who are supposed to make the rules and set the rules and those that keep the rules, you have chaos. Those homes aren't the sort of homes that you dream, those aren't the sort of families I'll just say that you like to go on vacation with, right? You hear me? Is it really a home that's good when there's little distinction between the role of the parents and the role of the children? How about a family where there's no discernible distinction between the affection of the parents for their own children and the way the parents treat the kids down the street? When there's no distinction, it's a sign of a lack of love, a lack of attention, a lack of care, not vice versa. How do you think children fare when they grow up in homes where there's no expectations uh, and no, no expectations regarding the distinctions that set their family apart from every other family in society? We are blessed when we maintain distinctions. And I, this is a truth that I've seen over the last few years. We've probably done premarital counseling with dozens of young couples at this point. And one of the things we always talk about is, you know, who do you want to model yourself after? And one of the things I can say, we talk about the fact that all of us have to look to other people and say, I want to be, I see something in them that reminds me of what scripture says, whether or not I've ever lived in that sort of home before, and I want to copy it. None of us are above looking to people that follow the distinctions of scripture and say, I want to copy it. We actually need to do that. So as we've talked with these young couples, they always bring to our attention people that are living out the distinctions of scripture. They always are pointing to people who say, man, this family sticks out because, you know, God says to die to yourself and serve others. They serve people. Or, man, God says you can't love God in money, and look at the way that they are generous. You know, God's put me in a job where we have more money than we need right now. I want to I be generous with other people. They're always pointing at people who are living in line with the distinctions found in the Word of God. It's never, never the opposite. They never point to somebody who's, there's nothing distinct about them. I want to be like them. You know, them, plain white, nothing sticks out about them. We like that. We want to model our home. Never heard that. Never heard it. Maintaining God's distinctions is not only right, it's not only right, it's good for us. When Eve tried to erase the distinction between her and God by eating of the forbidden fruit, it not only made God unhappy, but it also brought eventual death to her, to mankind, when Adam did. So just a moment ago, I said that God's distinctions are the heart of faith, and the ministry of the church. And to illustrate this, I want to spend some time illustrating this for us as a church family. And I want to do so by thinking about the three marks of a true church. Some of you may have heard of the marks of a church before. Others of you may not have. When you go for ordination, these are the kind of things you need to learn about. And so I got asked questions about the marks of the church as I was training to be a pastor. Now, the marks of the church, what are they? Well, during the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church basically argued that Christ preserved the true church, the real church, through the work of the Pope, who is the bishop in Rome. The true church is easily recognized because it's with fellowship with the Pope. So true churches are in fellowship with the Pope of Rome. Therefore, any church that does not submit to the Pope is a false church. And the reformers didn't accept this. They didn't accept Rome's approach. And they argued that the, truth of, uh, the, the, uh, the true church is not marked 
by submission to some supposedly infallible pope, but rather by accepting and submitting to the Word of God. That's what the Reformer said. It's by submitting and accepting the Word of God. Over time, in much discussion, there were three essential marks of a church that emerged. And I'm going to share them with you right now. The first was the faithful preaching of the Word. The faithful preaching of the Word of God. The second was administration of the sacraments. The third was faithful exercise of church discipline. This means that they made distinctions based off of what the Bible teaches. Perhaps a church has a wonderful preacher that's able to draw and maintain a large crowd on Sunday. Perhaps he's got a great smile, a great stage presence. He's really easy to follow, and you like him a lot. And yet, he doesn't practice any pastoral care. There's absolutely no shepherding and care in that church body going on at all. This is, by the definition, historically given, this is not a true church. This is, ties in, in Sunday school, we were just talking about making distinctions about heresies and looking at other, there's a lot of people who say we are a church, we are a part of the church, and we have to judge that based off of Scripture and what it says. Same with the sacraments. They may, they may do the sacraments right, but not have any pastoral care and not preach the word, and it is not a true church. This might strike you as over the top or extreme, or extreme. But actually, you would admit that faithful preaching, faithful administration of the sacraments, and faithful discipline and pastoral care are clearly things that are laid out in Scripture, wouldn't you? We all would. We couldn't deny it. They're just written there for us. We can't, we can't be faithful to the Bible and deny those things. And so the, the reality is that when we think that these things are extreme and over the top to say, man, that church isn't a true church, we aren't actually taking issue with any of those three things. We are actually just taking issue with making uh, a distinction about one per church versus another. Our problem isn't with the word or the sacraments or discipline. Our problem is with saying, well, that's a true church or that's not. You understand what I'm saying? True churches must have all three of these things present. The church is a family that must live in a way that embraces and upholds God's distinctions. And while there are many distinctions that we could consider this morning as we uh, continue in this sermon, I want to, to finish out our time this morning by giving some thought to what distinctions are present or implicit in the three marks of the church. So we're going to use those three things I just shared with you as a template as to consider distinctions. And I want to consider just not how those distinctions apply to the whole church, we all together, but by extension, how they apply to us as individuals. If we are each part of the church, then there are distinctions present in the word, the sacraments, and discipline that affect us both individually and corporately. And so first, I want to just briefly think about the word with you. First, Mark of a Church, faithful preaching of the word. The word is, it, it, it contains fundamental distinctions. There is one source of truth, not many. One source of truth. The church is to look to the word as its authority and the source of truth. Beyond this, what else does the word do? What, what does the Bible say the word of God does? Well, it divides, doesn't it? It divides. It says that it's a two-edged sword, piercing and cutting, dividing things. The word is constantly making distinctions. And so I want to ask you, 
As I ask myself, do you submit yourself to the distinctions found in the Word of God? Are you ashamed of the distinctions found in Scripture? Or do you seek to soften or blur the lines that God has written out? When it comes to things like the Sabbath or life, where it begins, or the love of money, or sexuality, or wisdom and foolishness, do we seek to agree with the distinctions that God has laid out? Or are we ashamed? Does it embarrass us? Are we annoyed by it? Do you find yourself wanting to blur the lines that God's word draws out bold and straight? We must embrace the distinctions of Scripture. The second, the second mark of the church had to do with faithful administration of the sacraments. So that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. God has ordained the sacraments to divide men physically, distinguishing between those who do and do not belong to him in a way that other people can see. Have you ever thought about that before? You thought about that reality? The sacraments do divide by the very nature of them. When we gather on the first Sunday of every month and share in the Lord's Supper, it's not a table to just anyone who wants to enter into it. We are happy to have Christians who, be- who love the Lord Jesus Christ and are a part of a church join with us in this family meal, but it is a family meal for those who are part of the family of God. And those that aren't a part of the family are invited by faith in Jesus into the family, but you can't sit at the family meal at the family table without being a part of the family. The warning of Scripture is that by partaking unworthily, that's the language that we hear each month, partaking unworthily, which again is a distinction word, worthy and unworthy, by partaking unworthily, they will eat and drink judgment on themselves. We hear this message each month. Do you recognize God's distinctions in the sacrament? On an individual level, there are also distinctions that are implicit, not just corporately when we gather around the, the, the table here. God has made a distinction between those that are his people and those that are not, and it's visible in the sacraments, but it goes beyond them. Scripture is clear on this point. Jesus says, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? No, but rather division. Consider the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples right before he's betrayed. A new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another, and this by the whole world will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This may be considered to be a general command for the Christian to love all people. The neighbor kids, the elderly gentleman down the road, the lady that is in your school co-op. And it's certainly true that we are to love all people. That's absolutely true. Jesus flipped the teaching of the Pharisees on its head when they used to teach that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says that you are to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So what I'm not saying here is that we aren't, we're to only love selectively. But, of course, the church is called to love those that are in the church in a unique way with a unique love that differentiates between those in and those that are outside. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the love feast of heaven. We are feasting on Christ with those that are in Christ. And while we love all, there is a love that goes deeper in the church. And this might sound offensive, but the truth is that God's distinctions often are offensive. 
the sacraments are often found to be places of offense in the church life when they're administered faithfully. And this is why we would often rather not embrace them, because God's distinctions will cause uh, offense. The Apostle Paul said, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially those who are of the household of faith. We're to do good to all, but especially those who are of the household of faith. In Acts, when the church was growing, many, many were being added to the church day by day is what we're told. And we're also told that no one had any need because those that were rich were giving and there was a common pot and they were sharing in accord. That's, that's sort of the, the, the idea behind our benevolence offering together. We take care of each other's needs. And no one had any need, but it isn't saying that no one had any need in all of Jerusalem or all of the whole surrounding area. It's talking about the church. The church is caring for its members in a way that's unique and special. That glorifies God. We can't deny that we are commanded to love all people, but there is special and deeper kind of love that unites the church. This is seen in, in, in communion, uh, but communion testifies, and this is the idea that I want us to remember, communion testifies to a reality that is constant. We don't just share that love once a month when we gather at the table. That love abides and should be the norm throughout our life as a church. And at this point, I want to make one little side comment here, and I'd like to say that I have often, uh, over time, heard people, talk, uh, people talk about church inwardness in a way that is only negative, the inwardness of a church or that church, um, and I'd like to caution us on this way of thinking. The reality is that every good church will likely be accused of being inward, or spending too much time together, or being too connected, or too close, or being too concerned, or too loyal. The truth is that our love and fellowship point to God's distinctions, and that will be upsetting to some. It will cause others to talk negatively and assume ill. If you've been here as a part of our class where we're looking at the early church, you know that this happened right after the new time of the New Testament. You had Christians being slandered and accused of ill because of their intense love and commitment and fellowship with each other. Everyone around watching it was suspicious at best and 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 physically opposed to it at worst. So this always happens. Of course, there is a type of inwardness that is wrong, that is bad. It's the kind that's rooted in pride and vanity rather than in God's distinctions. But the fact is that all good churches will have a sense of inwardness. And so when we hear inward only being used in a a pejorative sense, We need to think more deeply about that. We need to remember the distinctions that God has has laid out in his word about the way that the church loves each other and deals with each other. Does that make sense? If we deny this, we also have to deny that God has a special love for us as his people that we share in and participate in. So I want to ask, are you stoking the fire of your love for those in the church? When sin causes there to be something between you and someone else, are you quick to forgive so that that unity can be restored and that closeness can be maintained? By loving and cherishing and giving your life to the church, you are embracing God's distinctions. That's what embracing his distinction looks like 
in this area of life. So we, we talked a little bit about the word. We talked a little bit about the sacraments. And the third mark of the church is that of church discipline. Faithful church discipline. When you hear the term church discipline, you might be inclined to only think about the most advanced steps in a discipline process. But the reality is that, like in the home, discipline is both positive and negative and is constantly happening through encouragement and the writing of letters, as well as by challenges, um, and it happens by your friends and peers, as well as by elders alike. But in the right administration of discipline, we make distinctions between those that are a part of the church and those that are outside the church. We have different expectations that those that are, for those that are in the church than we have for those that are outside. When we come into membership, if you're a member here, this is one of the vows you're asked to take. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and do you promise to study its purity and its peace? When it comes to making judgments and challenges, we make distinctions. There are different expectations for those in the church and those outside. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with any immoral person. I did not mean with all immoral people of this world or with the covetous, covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. You can't escape that. That's not what I meant. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's what Paul says. What do I have to do with that? Do, not do you not judge those that are within? But those that are outside, God judges so remove the wicked man from your midst. Don't, don't judge those outside. Do you understand that Paul is, is, is living out and teaching the distinctions that, that are God's right here? We have different expectations for those inside as we, and outside. Paul is speaking with regard to expectations. There's a distinction between brother and outsider. There's a great kid who lives down the road from us whose name is Ben and he is frequently at our house and has his legs under our dinner table. We love him a lot. He is a good friend to our boys. And when he's with us, I have certain expectations for him. There are certain things he's not allowed to say, certain things that he's not allowed to do while he is in our home. And that's the way it is because I honor God and I call those in our house to, to honor God. But what I will say is that the level of expectation that I have for Ben is not the same that I have for my own boys when they're playing with Ben. I have to make distinctions between him and my own children. Why? Because he hasn't received the same training or the same instruction. He doesn't know the things that my boys know. He's not part of my family. And so my expectations for him are not the same. Oppositely, if I want to look at over now at my children... Because my children have received my instruction and are a part of the family, I make a distinction that causes my expectations to rise. God's distinctions are the heart of biblical faith. And we live in a day where there is no sin more heinous than having the audacity to be dogmatic or hold to God's distinctions. That is one of the worst things you can do today. 
to say, no, God has said that there's a difference between this and this, that this is right, that this is wrong, that this leads to life, that this leads to death, that this is the way we were made and not that way. There's nothing worse than that today. That is basically one of the only sins you can commit in secular culture. And this family needs men and women that are willing to embrace God's distinctions, not just when it comes to topics like homosexuality, but when it comes much closer to home with pornography, with honoring the Sabbath day, with our commitment to truthfulness. It affects everything. You know, I could, there's many, many, many different things that we could list off here, and I'm just trying to prod us to start thinking about this truth. Have you made a covenant with your eyes so that you will not look at certain things and will look at other things? Have you set an expectation so that as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord? That's a distinction. He's drawing the line and saying, this is what we will do. That is what other people are doing, but this is what we will do. And it goes bad when all those distinctions are based on our pride and on what we think is best, but when it's what God has said, it's absolutely right and necessary for us to live in that way. We must be men and women who are willing to make distinctions that are in line with God's truth. We must be willing to embrace God's distinctions and uphold them. I hope that by drawing out some of these distinctions in the three marks, the the word, the sacraments, and discipline, we can just start to begin to see how God's distinctions permeate life in our church family corporately, but also how they apply to our home life, to your family, to your roommate, to your brothers and sisters, to other students. We need to be able to recognize God's distinctions and embrace them as given to us for our good. You know, it's, it struck me as I was thinking about this idea this week that it's always the sign of a great family when the children are not embarrassed by the distinctions of their family. You ever notice that? There's all things that set us apart. We all have our oddities, we all have our things, and it's always a sign of a great home when those children don't grow up to resent the distinctions, but to, but to have fun with them, to laugh about them, to teach them to their children. It's always a sign of a healthy home, isn't it? We need to be the same way. God, is, God has given us many distinctions in his word, and we are called to uphold them. Let's, let's enjoy them and see them as for our good. May we embrace them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask that you'd forgive us for the times that we are ashamed of what you've said is light and darkness. We do confess there are times where we have, many times where we have made our own distinctions above yours and held to them in pride, and we ask that you would forgive us and that we'd be men and women who stand on the truth of your scripture. And Father, I pray that we would uphold the distinctions you have woven into the fabric of this world. Father, may this be a testimony. May this be part of our evangelism. We pray that you would be honored and glorified, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.